It is good to be here, and I really, truly mean that, as it's been about three weeks since I've been here. Um, we've had a lot, it feels like it's been forever, and walking in even felt a little bit like, okay, what, what am I going to expect? It's just been a while. And so um, we had been at Momentum Youth Conference uh, several weeks ago, and then that followed up directly with father-child retreat and sleeping in a tent in the rain, and... There were places I'd rather been here that morning, um, well, the night probably, but then also then my family and I got to spend a week of vacation, and so we were missing last week, and so to come back this morning was refreshing and was, is a joy, and I'm really grateful um, to be able to have this opportunity to open up God's word. Um, as we continue in our series in the Psalms, you'll see that we're attempting to cover Psalm 119. That's right, all of it, the whole Psalm. Not one little section, but the whole thing. But in reality, that would be impossible to cover every single verse. So my hope for us today is that we'll see this amazing psalm in a really fresh way. That we'll approach it with greater anticipation. And that in beholding all the wonders of Psalm 119, we'll behold the wondrous treasure of not just the word of God, but the God of the word. Now, we often, if, you're, if you've come in this morning, and as we're going to be reading a portion of Scripture in a minute, didn't come in with a physical Bible, we'd love to give you one. If you don't own one, you can have the one that our hosts will hand to you. If you do have one, but you just forgot it at home, grab one of these, catch their eye, wave your hand, and you can use that and return it at the end. But we would love for you, as we read in a few minutes, um, to be able to follow along um, in a physical Bible in the Word of God. Now, one of the things in life that matter a whole lot are first impressions. First impressions, they really do matter. They're not ultimate. Our first impressions can be changed, but it's really difficult. They often tend to set our perspective or our posture for the way that we approach people or the way we approach activities or the way we approach food or the way we approach music or even entertainment choices. And it's really hard, once a first impression has been set, to get somebody to change. If there's a person you don't like, it's going to be a hard time. You're going to need an experience with them that's positive to get to like them. If there's an activity that you've tried and failed at or didn't enjoy, you're probably not doing it again. Your first impression has kind of set your posture against that. Or possibly, um, maybe food. You maybe tried something as a kid and you hated it. And so for the rest of your life, it doesn't matter how many people are going to tell you that it's good. Try it again. This one's different. You're like, no way. My first impression is set in stone. That is not good food. But when we think of Psalm 119, I want to ask, what's your first impression? What quickly comes to mind when we think of the largest chapter in all of the Bible in the center of the book of Psalm 119? It's long. That might be your first impression. It might just be as simple as that. It's long, and therefore it's too long to enjoy. It's the longest chapter, and it's the psalm where you either skip it, or because there's too much for one sitting, you take this deep breath before you enter in, or you simply speed walk through it. You're like, I'm just going to fly real quick. Get through it. It's about the Word of God. That might be another impression that you have, because that's true. It is about the Word of God. It's the Bible talking about the Bible. Almost all the verses seem to say the same thing. It seems general. It feels repetitive. It doesn't seem like there's a storyline to it. It's random. It's unconnected. 
It feels like Proverbs where there are valuable nuggets of gold and things to like guide our lives by, and yet it doesn't flow. Your impression might be that it's Hebrew poetry. That would be true as well, like much of the Psalms. But this one, we know that by the headings, it does have some ancient order to it. You'll look at the different headings and you get all of these different words that don't make a lot of sense to you if you don't know Hebrew. But it's arranged with 176 verses arranged in 22 stanzas that are eight lines each. And each line begins with the same letter from the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, you might think, that's cute. Wonderful. I don't see that. Every word or every sentence doesn't start with the same letter for me because it doesn't translate poetically to English. And so it feels clunky and it feels disorganized. And it actually leaves us with the opposite impression from the intended beauty. And these first impressions are mostly negative. You may have some positive ones. Some of you may love how Psalm 119 exhorts you to Bible study and to memorizing scripture. And some of you may feel guilty and burdened by that same thing. Maybe when you think of Psalm 119, you think of a key passage that has had deep meaning, but it's buried in a sea of verses that are largely forgettable to you or that you're unfamiliar with. Of the 176 verses, you might remember, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or you might remember, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Or my personal favorite prayer, which you've heard multiple times already this service, and I will say it over and again, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things. So we're not going to read all of Psalm 119 this morning. But I hope that today your heart will be stirred to run to it. That you won't be afraid of it anymore. That maybe you'll sacrifice 15 minutes that it will take to read it. I promise you, set a timer. Read through it. Read it out loud. It'll take you about 15 minutes to read through Psalm 119. And I pray that for some of you, those 15 minutes will send you on a prayer journey with God that'll turn into an hour as you meditate, as you investigate, as you reread, as you bask in the wonderful things that you'll discover. Maybe you'll commit to return to Psalm 119 each day this week. Or maybe you'll commit to say, I'm going to read eight verses a day for the next 22 days. And I'm just going to marinate in it. I'm going to spend time with that one little chunk. And I'm going to read it two or three times. And that you would see this simple prayer answered in your life. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. So as you behold the beauty of God's word, you'll begin to see the heart of God. Because his heart can be found in his word. As I invite Alexis and Jonathan and Mackenzie up here, they're going to read a portion of Psalm 119. I want to ask you to take 10 to 20 seconds to pray Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So take 10 seconds or so right now. Close your eyes and just and listen to the helicopter above our heads or whatever that is. And ask God to open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. Go ahead and pray that to God right now. Amen.
So we'll be reading the first 24 verses, which are the first three stanzas of Psalm 119. So would you stand, as we often do, in honor of the Word of God as Alexis begins reading? Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up my, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, our Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Thank you. You may be seated. This is the word of God. You may recall that at the beginning of June, Alexis and Jonathan and Mackenzie stood before you as they were getting ready to leave for California for their travel team's ministry training experience and for Jonathan to work on his tan. And I think they were successful in, in all of those things. They got tans, they got ministry training, they had experiences, but a big feature of each of their days in their ministry was to spend the first hour of each day, that's right, an hour of each day in the word alone with God. This isn't something that they had to go to California to do, but I'm confident that each of them would say that this time each day was the foundation of all that God taught them during their training. It was intimidating at first and soon anticipated as each new day approached. And their posture of their hearts grew to desire and long for these times each day. They came to know the heart of God through the word of God as they daily spent quality and quantity time with him. Now, Carly and I, earlier this spring, had a unique opportunity to attend a wedding for the first time where we knew nobody else except for the bride and the groom. I don't know if you've had that experience. Most of the times when we go to a wedding, we know several people, or we're at least grouped up on the table with the few people that we know uh, at the reception, but we didn't know anybody except each other and the bride and the groom. Remember this, uh, some of the favorite psalms that you might have from this passage? It was kind of like that. It was, it, we knew three people. We knew the bride. We knew the groom. We knew each other. Thy word have I hid in my heart. That was one of them. Thy word is a lamp to my feet. Open my eyes that I might see. And so we had these three that we hung on to, but then we're in the midst of this sea of people that we have never met, we have never seen, and we have no idea who they are. Now, we knew this day was special. We had that perspective. We knew it was important. But we found ourselves out of place and maybe a little uncomfortable at times. We knew the bride, kind of. 
We knew the groom in a uh, regular conversation, borrow your tools and play with your dog kind of way. And we knew each other intimately. And so we clung to one another. We, we said hi and made small talk with the bride. We exchanged heartfelt congratulations and thanks to the groom for including us in their day. But for the bulk of the time, we found ourselves at a table full of strangers. People worth knowing, but unfamiliar to us. People with history and deep friendships with one another. And the bride and the groom. And the, the groom even assured us, you'll love these people. They're great. And they were great people. We just didn't know them. And so we dabbled in small talk. We sought to make common connections in order to survive and pass the time. Now, to be fair, this is much more my perspective than Carly's perspective, probably, speaking as an introvert who is often allergic to small talk and uncomfortable situations. So, which is all the more reason my posture was to cling to her, to the one person that I knew best and that I loved. As we approach God's word, there is this vast reception hall of wondrous things to behold. And I long to know so much more of God through his word. I long not just to put in my time, but to invest deeply and develop deep friendships and treasures from his word. Now, Psalm 119 is not academic. It's not prescriptive, though it is medicine for a hurting and searching heart. A biblical counselor, David Pallison, has written this short summary to kind of help paint a picture. He said, Psalm 119 is torrential, not topical. It's relentless, not repetitive. It's personal, not propositional. I love how that encapsulates what we see when our first impression is often topical or, or repetitive or it's, it's not the things we expect it to be. It's torrential, it's relentless, it's personal. Psalm 119 is the honest prayer of a lover of God. It's an outcry of brokenness and a longing for more of God in the midst of pain. It's a determined pursuit to cultivate intimacy with God. It's a breath of satisfaction and comfort, delight in something so rich and so beautiful that helps us know the one who knows us best. Psalm 119 invites us to not just sit around and put in our time and wait for the cake to be cut so that we can get out of there. It's a cherished conversation with the lover of our souls, the one who speaks to us through his written word. The psalm begins in a very familiar way, in a very familiar way at the beginning. The first three verses, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. It's familiar because it sounds a lot like the whole book of Psalms begins in Psalm chapter 1 that says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. This psalm shows us a posture for blessing. That by seeking God, by pursuing God, by keeping his word, by walking in his ways, by studying the Bible, memorizing, memorizing scripture, it's a posture for blessing. But what's unique about Psalm 119 is that after those first three verses, the next 173 passages are deeply personal. 
It leaves these general third-person statements of blessing behind because that's what they are. It's those whose way and those who keep and they who do no wrong. It leaves these third-person general statements in the dust and interacts with the person of God in relation to his word in an intimate first-person way. It's, it's an I to you and a you to me kind of interaction and conversation that happens over and over again. It's an exhaustive, and some might say exhausting, example for us that is set to follow how to approach the Lord as we walk in the law of the Lord, as we seek him with our whole hearts, as we walk in his ways. So as we seek the heart of God, it cannot be found apart from the word of God. But our posture does matter. How we approach and see the glorious and wondrous things of God will cause us to see and savor his love for us. And so I've broken this down rather than in any like hitting each section of big impressions and postures that we can have as we approach Psalm 119. And so there are four postures of our heart. The first of which is a longing heart. We see the psalmist has a longing heart, a desire The psalmist has this longing heart. It's his aspiration to know the Lord intimately. His longings are not perfect, though, and his longings fall short, but his heart desires to know God. Question, does your heart desire God? That's a baseline question for you to consider. They may not be perfect desires or perfect longings, but does your heart desire the heart of God? I want to give you some examples from just some random, but not random, but scriptures through Psalm 119 that highlight this psalmist's longing heart. Verse 18 says, and we've heard it before, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. He's asking for his eyes to be open. Verse 20 says, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verses 81 and 82 say, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? In the NIV translation, it actually says, my soul faints with longing. My eyes fail looking. That's a desiring and longing heart. In verse 131, he says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. If you've had a dog or interacted with a dog, you know what panting is all about. When they need water, they pant. Do we open our mouth and pant, longing for God's commandments? These are vivid pictures that we can can grab hold of as a posture for ourselves. Can these deep longings of the heart be said of you? Can they be said of me? Too often, these are not true statements of my reality. They are longings of my heart, but I'm so easily distracted and led astray. I have so many other things that capture my longings. And sure, someone may say, um, I long for the heart of God, but the psalmist is longing for rules, for commandments. For real, who does that? (laughs) Who wants laws and commandments and more rules? Throughout all of this psalm, nearly every verse refers to God's word in one of eight, eight different ways. Laws, testimonies, ways, precepts, statutes, commandments, Rules and, of course, word, his word. I think in a lot of ways this is our aversion for longing for these things because while we want the heart of God, the rules and all of that, like we got enough of that in life. 
G.K. Chesterton, in his writing on orthodoxy, illustrates the value of rules in this way. He tells of a group of children playing high up on a cliff. And he says it this way, imagine children playing on the flat grassy top of some tall island in the sea. So long as there was a wall around the cliff's edge, they could fling themselves into every frantic game and make the place the noisiest of nurseries. He goes on to say that when the wall or fence is taken down, these same carefree children were huddled in terror in the center of the grass. Without hesitation, the children would affirm a longing for rules, a longing for boundaries of a law that would restore their freedom. The psalmist has a heart that longs for God's law because he knows within it there is freedom. He knows that the heart of God is for him and not against him. He knows that he is most free to live and explore and rejoice and find peace where there are precepts and commandments. These children can play without abandon, without care, and complete freedom when there's a fence, when there's a wall, when there are boundaries. And it is utter terror and no freedom when the wall that we would assume is constricting them and preventing them from truly living, when that's taken down, that's when the freedom goes away and they huddle in the middle in fear. Psalm 119.32 in the NIV says, I run in the path of your commands for you have, heart, you have set my heart free. I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. Is your heart free? Do you find freedom or restriction in the law of the Lord? A posture of longing for the ways of God leads to blessing. A second posture of the psalmist is that he demonstrates a truthful heart. A truthful heart. He is honest. You may read through this psalm and feel defeated by the perfection it seems that the psalmist has. Guilt for not having such strong desires might sneak in and overtake you. You may think the sustained level of God focus is unattainable and, and overwhelming. But the psalmist is very truthful. He's honest. And we can be honest as we come to the Lord. He's big enough to handle our doubts. He's strong enough. He's sufficient. His grace is sufficient to cover our sins. His mercy is new every morning. His faithfulness continues even when we're faithless. Back to the prayer, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your law. If you can see it all clearly, you don't need your eyes opened. And so the psalmist needed to cry out for God's help because his eyes were weak. He's being honest. In verse 5, he says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Because they're not always steadfast. He fails. In verse 10, he says, Let me not wander. In verse 28, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me. Verse 29, Put false ways far from me. In verse 37, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. The tendency to wonder, the sorrow that overtakes was real. False ways were present for the psalmist. And while he longed for God's laws, he truthfully acknowledged that his eyes are easily turned toward worthless things. I've got a lot of worthless things that I pursue in life. Most of them are sports and food related. I fulfilled a lot of these desires just this week on a trip with Jack and Charlie to indulge in Steelers training camp, a Pirates baseball game, and eat way too much junk food for which I paid for the next day. 
these things, they're not wrong things, unless maybe you're a Cincinnati or a Cleveland fan, then you may disagree that they are wrong. But I'm often convicted. I'm often convicted when I think about the volume of conversation and the ease with which I can talk about a third-string offensive lineman rather than the third-string stories from the Old Testament. It comes easy. I love those things. I like to, to listen to podcasts. I like to read articles. I like to watch things. I like to watch the games. But when someone thinks of me, how long is the list of descriptions before they get to a heart for God and a love for his word? Pizza connoisseur, Steelers fan, Sheets freak probably come to mind much more quickly when you think of me. And that convicts me. It's these temporary things that I too often long for ahead of the eternal words of life. And that's not to say those things are wrong, but when they overwhelm what's best and what's true. In order to longingly desire the Lord, I need to acknowledge truthfully my weakness. But it's not just these idols of our lives that obscure our vision. There are worthless things that are sinful, that destroy us, that separate us eternally from God and his ways. If you're looking for a story arc in Psalm 119, you can see it partially in verses 81 to 88. So like, mark that down and go back to that and read those verses kind of right in the center as the psalmist is, it kind of hits rock bottom. He's looking for and can't find comfort. He's enduring persecution and waiting for judgment to fall. And yet he calls, he calls on the truth that he knows. That God's steadfast love gives him life. I want to read what follows those, those eight verses, starting at verse 89. A resolve is born out of trouble. And verse 89 begins this way. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. The heart of God is known through the word of God. The book of Romans also makes this very clear that for any wanderer, any sinner, that apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are dead in our sins. The law is good, but the law lights our path so that we can see our need, so that we can see our way to the Savior. Honesty about our sinfulness is only as good as the mirror to which we look into. Honesty about our sinfulness is only as good as the mirror into which we speak it. To be honest with no rebuke, without repentance, is simply dangerous self-talk. It's in the mirror of God's word, speaking truthfully to the God who hears to the God who loves, to the God who is holy, to the God who speaks back through his word to us. That's where hope and freedom are found. The psalmist is a person who has listened to God and then opens his heart to the person who has spoken. I want to read some passages from Romans to highlight that the law has its place, but it's the Savior and if we're a sinner that has gone astray, and if we're one who has wandered off and never committed our lives to Jesus as Lord of our lives, these passages direct us to the salvation that is found in Jesus. 
Here's what it says in Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. The heart of God is known through the word of God. In Romans 10, Moses writes and it highlights what Moses has written, which is what the psalmist knew and loved and longed for. That's the writings and the scriptures that he had at that time. And he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Apart from Jesus, we are already condemned. But Romans 8 goes on and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You see, the posture of our heart as we approach God's word is longing and truthful, desirous and honest. And this leads us to a determined heart. As the psalmist does, we declare who God is. We honestly confess sin. We ask for help. We determine to follow his ways. Maybe another way to summarize Psalm 119 is this. You are good. This stinks. I'm helpless. Help me. I'm yours. And the psalmist can say all four of those statements in complete honesty and truth. And they all fit together in Christ. You are good, God. This stinks. Life is hard and it stinks sometimes. I'm helpless, recognizing our sinfulness. Help me. And then a determined commitment that I'm yours. A determined heart. A determined heart is this third posture, this pursuit. This is the resolve of a heart that knows worthless things are indeed worthless. He knows that worthless things are worthless in comparison to God's word. I love the powerful words of action that the psalmist uses to describe his intention as his posture declares, I'm yours. In my Bible, I've gone and I've, I've circled a lot of these action words because they just jump off the page at me. They're not the way in which I normally talk about my pursuit of God. And so I long for those to be true of me. Some of those action words I want to highlight. He says, the psalmist says, I will. With my whole heart, I seek you. I will meditate. My soul clings. I have chosen. I will run. I remember. I hasten and do not delay. 
I hold back my feet from every evil way. I do not turn aside. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it. I incline my heart. My zeal consumes me. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I rarely rise before dawn unless I have to go to the bathroom. I rejoice. I rejoice at your word. Seven times a day I praise you. Like the resolve that the psalmist has as he runs to God's word with determination is a determination that I long to have. The psalmist is confident in his convictions. He knows who he is and whose he is. That leads him to have a satisfied heart. A satisfied heart that delights in the Lord. Finally, throughout this psalm, we'll see over and over again a person who in spite of struggles and attacks and sin, we see a person who has a deeply satisfied heart. A heart posture that delights in the word of God and the God of the word. In fact, if you just went through and underlined the word delight, you'd find it about 10 times throughout this passage. But there are other words that are very similar to delight and that show and demonstrate a satisfied heart. He says, I delight. He says, I hope. I love. I take comfort. I rejoice. I praise. Oh, how I love your law. How sweet are your words. Sweeter than honey to my lips. This kind of satisfaction, though, it doesn't come from trying harder. It doesn't come by stumbling into it accidentally. It comes from the pursuit of a God who pursues you. It comes from the pursuit of a God who chases down his lost sheep. From a God who meets us where we are and through his spirit and through his word and through the people of God changes us. A satisfied heart is the blessing of, the po- of a posture that comes from a hard and difficult road of suffering. The psalmist experienced the delight that was born out of distress, and he came to know that God's wounds could be trusted because he's trustworthy. As he was coming to a resolve of some of these things, he says in verse 65 through 72, And he's recognizing what this struggle and what this pursuit is and where his suffering and affliction have left him. And he says this, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Verse 66, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. A satisfied heart that has been born out of affliction blows my mind, and the process often stinks. It hurts immensely. But a posture that is longing and truthful, a posture that is determined and satisfied, finds treasure in the trials. It doesn't mean we wouldn't wish for a lesser trial or no trial at all. It doesn't mean we wouldn't love to grow through a less painful means. I'll sign up for that. But along with the psalmist, we can say, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I obey your word. And that it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. 
Now, I've not experienced deep trials and loss like many of you have, or many of you are still walking through or walking through even now. But the Lord gave me an amazing gift that I didn't ask for this past April. Some of you may know that my son Henry and I were in a car accident that totaled my car. It was the first of that kind for me. I hadn't been in that kind of accident before, and it was scary. And it made no sense at the time. See, we were driving south on 71, and we were approaching Morse Road. So you can pinpoint right about where we were. We're approaching Morse Road. We're running late for an appointment, and so there's all of these details that could have changed every situation and every split second of this accident. But as we're driving, we look up, and out of the corner of our eye, to this angle, flying through the air, is a wheel. A wheel. A wheel was flying at us. It was inevitable. I slowed down. I started to steer to avoid it, to get out of the way, but there was nothing I could do, and the wheel smashed the hood of the car. It happened so fast, and yet it all felt like slow motion at the same time. The moment of impact jolted us and left us in a cloud of white dust from the airbags and a, a blaring horn that just wouldn't go off. In fact, as it was towed away, the horn was still going an hour later. <laughs> the disorientation that we had in the middle of the highway, it was like watching YouTube or, or playing a video game that we were living in real life and one that we didn't want any part of. I guided the car to safety, and, and we walked away without a scratch. Praise the Lord. But as I soon realized that we were safe, the annoyance of inconvenience began to overwhelm me. And I started to get grumpy. And I started to think, why this? And why me? Why now? This was our best car, by the way. And so this is not good. Now we're without this car. Carly planned to use it next week to travel to Illinois. All of these things and the, the, the insurance, the, all of the stuff, all the details, I hated that. Everything worked out and there were several blessings along the way. But the biggest blessing was this. Henry and I bonded. Our relationship hadn't been in the best place at that point in time. We were struggling to connect, to see things the same way, and I failed to appreciate the unique and amazing ways that God has wired him because they were different than me. And I really just longed to not have tension in our relationship. At a low point, just four days earlier, a memory on social media popped up and moved me to tears. Maybe you've had those moments with your kids that you remember simpler days or you remember those things and you're like, it's so hard right now, but that, ah. Oh. Can we just go back there? And I didn't want to turn the clock back on life. And yet, here it was in front of me, a card that Henry had drawn for me on my birthday years earlier. And here's what it said. I like how you walk. I like how you talk. I like how silly and fun you are. You make my day a better day, a better place to be. I like. And then he crossed out like and wrote, I love you, Daddy. And I sat there and I cried. Sat in my office screenshotted it because I wanted to remember it. And I prayed that God would step in. I prayed that God would get rid of the tension that we were feeling. And would you know it, four days later, in the strangest possible way, he sent a wheel from the northbound Chevy Tahoe to smash my car <laughs> and make me realize how precious life is, how quickly things can change. 
how much I love my son. And the bond that we were able to have, but no one else had that experience except the two of us. I can say with confidence, it was good for me to be afflicted because it drew me closer to him. It drew us closer together. The blessing of pain deepened my trust in God. And so when nothing else makes sense, I think many of you have experienced this when you're going through trials. You just turn to God's word. You're like, everything else is shaky. Nothing else makes sense. Everything else is uncertain. Things are falling apart. I trust you. And you turn to his word. And it comforts you. And you find deep satisfaction that maybe you wouldn't have had if the trial hadn't come and the affliction hadn't come. So some questions for you as we close. When affliction does come, does it make you bitter or does it make you better? Does your heart posture seek satisfaction in the Lord or does it sit back with your arms folded in protest? Is your heart posture one of determination to forsake temporary things for the pursuit of eternal things? Is your heart posture one of determination to forsake temporary things for the pursuit of eternal things? Is your heart truthful and directed toward the mirror of God's word, willing and ready to change? Or do you simply just vent frustrations, hoping for a chorus of affirmations from others that will leave you unchanged? Are your deepest longings for Jesus? Even if they're weak and even if they're sometimes distracted, do you desire to know him more than anything else? The heart of God is known through the word of God. I want to read these first three verses once again. It say, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for affliction that you bring into our lives with a purpose, with a plan to chase us down and to seek us to draw us back to your side, to draw us back to your word, to help us see your heart for us. Help us have a posture that longs for you. Help us have a po to have a posture of our heart that seeks you, that determines to know you, that loves you, a heart posture that is truthful and honest. And then God, would you give us satisfaction in you? Would you give us greater satisfaction in you and in your word than the things of this earth, the worthless things that we don't need? Oh, they're fun and we'll enjoy those things, but we don't want them to overshadow you and your heart. We long for you and we long for your son, Jesus, and to know him more. And it's in his name we pray, amen.